Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question, where we try to understand the complicated world we're living in and the crazy things that are happening by asking questions, and by listening to people who really know what they're talking about. At times, it may lead to some pretty uncomfortable conversations. But stick with me, everyone. Let's all learn together. More than 2.1 billion people use Facebook or one of its services like Instagram or WhatsApp every single day. That's nearly one-third of the entire world's population. But recently, the company has gone from the brilliant brainchild of a Harvard dropout named Mark Zuckerberg to one of the most controversial companies on the planet. He was recently grilled on Capitol Hill by members of Congress concerned about the platform's increasing footprint in almost every aspect of our lives. Sure, Facebook can bring communities together— help you share photos with your family, and even start movements. But it can also unfairly impact elections, spread misinformation, create a safe space for child pornographers and white supremacists, invade our privacy, exploit our personal information, and increase the deep divisions of our already polarized nation. That's quite a laundry list, isn't it? And with the 2020 election fast approaching, you may be wondering if it might be deja vu all over again, And worried that, to borrow a phrase from the 1966 movie, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Not to mention China and other foreign powers. And the company's recent decision not to fact-check political ads led to a heated debate on social media between Zuckerberg and Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, who said the platform had become a, quote, disinformation-for-profit machine. 
And she even placed an ad on Facebook saying Zuckerberg was supporting Trump for president to test if it would be removed. It wasn't. Meanwhile, more than 250 of its own employees signed an open letter warning that the ad policy is, quote, a threat to what Facebook stands for. So I was impressed that the company's COO, Sheryl Sandberg, was willing to sit down with me recently at the Vanity Fair New Establishment Conference in Los Angeles. She's been with the company since 2011 and has played a pivotal role in shaping both its culture and its business strategy, leading it to more than $22 billion in profits last year. She's also an advocate for women in the workplace with her 2013 book and organization, Lean In. And I got to know Cheryl after her husband, Dave, died unexpectedly in 2015. She reached out because I, too, had lost my husband at an early age. Cheryl wrote a book about her experience called Option B, and I interviewed her for that back in 2017. If you're interested, you can find that interview in my feed. Our recent conversation at the Vanity Fair Summit got a lot of attention, and I thought it made sense to share it with all of you on my podcast. So my next question for Sheryl Sandberg, is Facebook doing enough to protect its more than 2 billion users and our democracy? Or is it time to unfriend Facebook? Cheryl, thank you for being here. We have a lot to talk about, as you know, so let's get right to it. We're just over a year from the 2020 election, 378 days to be exact. But who's counting? Yeah, but I think the way Facebook addresses and fixes the platform that was used in 2016 is seen as a major critically important test. I know certain measures have in fact been implemented, for example, 35,000 moderators looking for fake accounts and suspicious patterns. Mark Zuckerberg announced new safeguards like labeling media outlets that are state controlled. But do you believe that's enough? I mean, do you really seriously believe that we won't witness the kind of widespread interference we saw in 2016 and 2020? Well, we're going to do everything we can to prevent it. Um, I do think we're in a very different place. So if you think back to 2016, we had protections against state actors. But when you thought about state actors going against a technology platform, what you thought of was hacking. The Sony emails, the DNC emails, stealing information. And that's what our defenses were really set up to prevent, and so were everyone else's. What we totally missed, and it is on us for missing it, and everyone missed this, was not stealing information, but going in and writing fake stuff. It was a totally different threat, and our systems weren't set up to deal with it. So the question is, as you're asking, what are we doing going forward, and how are we going into the 2020 election, and how did we do in 2018? And we're in a totally different place. The FBI has a task force on this. They didn't have anyone working on it. Homeland Security is working on it. All the tech companies are working together because when you try to interfere on one platform, you try to interfere on another. In 2016, we didn't know what this threat was. In 2017, we did one takedown. In the last year, we did 50. And I read a shocking number. You took down more than 2.2 billion fake accounts in a three-month period. That's right. We take down millions every day. So 35,000 moderators, is that even enough given? I mean, 2.2 billion is almost the number of people who are on the platform. So the moderators are looking for content. The fake accounts are being found with engineering. That's the only way to find those fake accounts. Most of those are found before anyone 
ever sees them. And fake accounts are a really important point here because everything that was done by Russia in 2016, everything was done under a fake account. So if you can find the fake accounts, you often find the root of, of the problem. And so we are now taking down millions every day, almost all of which no one has seen. You talked about uh, disrupting 50 individual campaigns from multiple nation states so far, but what about domestic threats? Facebook's own former security chief, Alex Stamos, has said, quote, what I expect is that the Russian playbook is going to be executed inside of the U.S. by domestic groups, in which case some of it, other than hacking, is not illegal. My real fear, he says, is that in 2020, it's going to be the battle of the billionaires, of secret groups working for people aligned on both sides who are trying to manipulate us at scale online. So what is Facebook doing to defend the platform against this kind of domestic threat? It's a really good question because things are against our policies if they're fraudulent or fake accounts, but people can also kind of deceive. Again, if you look at where we were and where we are, the transparency is dramatically different. So you look on the, every page on Facebook, you can now see the origin of where the person is. So if someone is, has a page that's called, I don't know, US whatever, but they're from the Ukraine, it's clearly marked that. If you look at our ad library, we didn't have this last time. You can see any political ad running actually anywhere in the country or in most places of the world, even if they're not targeted to you. So before, if they were trying to reach you, you could see it, but you couldn't see anything else. Now you can see everything. And we rolled out a presidential ad tracker so that you can see the presidential campaigns much more holistically. So with the transparency measures we have, people should be able to, we're trying to get rid of the fake accounts and the ones that are legitimate, whether they're run domestically or globally, make sure people understand who the people are behind what they're seeing. But then why did Facebook announce not to fact check political ads last month? I know uh, the Rand Corporation actually has a term for this, which is truth decay. And Mark himself uh, has defended this decision even as he expressed concern about the erosion of truth online. So what is the rationale for that? And I know you're going to say we're not a news organization, we're a platform. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but it's a really important question. And I'm really glad to have a chance to take a beat and really think about it and talk about it. So one of the most controversial things out there right now is what ads do we take? What ads do others take? And do we fact check political ads? And it is a hard conversation and emotions are running very high on this. I also sit here realizing it's however many days you said before the election. So the ads that are controversial now, we have not even seen the beginning of what we're gonna see. There are gonna be a lot of controversial ads and controversial speech. So why are we doing this? It's not for the money, let's start there. This is a very small part of our revenue. 5% or something? Uh, we don't release the numbers, but it's very small, very small, and it is very controversial. We're not doing this for the money. We take political ads because we really believe they are part of political discourse and that taking political ads means that people can speak. If you look at this over time, the people who have most benefited from being able to run ads are people who are not covered by the media, so they can't get their message out otherwise. People who are challenging an incumbent, so they're a challenger, and people who have different points of view. That's, that's been true historically. And so we also have this issue that if we, let's say we took political ads off the service, we would still have all the issue ads. So I'm running an ad on gender equality, I'm running an ad on another political issue. 
those ads are much, much, much bigger in terms of scope than the political ads. So you would have every voice in the debate except the politicians themselves. So instead, what we're doing is as much transparency as possible. Every ad has to be marked by who paid for it. We're doing verification to make sure the people that say they're paid. And that ads library I started talking about is really important because you can't hide. You can't run one ad in one state, one ad in another, one ad to one group, one ad to another. Anyone can go into that library and see any ad that any politician is running anywhere. Well, this is what Vanita Gupta wrote, the former head of the DOJ's Civil Rights Division in Politico. Simply put, she wrote, while major news organizations are strengthening fact-checking and accountability, Facebook is saying, if you are a politician who wishes to peddle in lies, distortion, and not-so-subtle racial appeals, welcome to our platform. You will not be fact-checked. You are automatically newsworthy. You are automatically exempt from scrutiny. So I know Vanita, and I've had a chance to speak to her since she since she posted that. And I think the debate is really important. I've had a chance to work with her on her civil rights work. We've taken a lot of feedback from her, and we're going to continue. Um, what she was writing there was not only about ads. It was really about content on the platform. So taking a step back, here's what we do. When you write something, we have a very strong free expression bent. We think it's very important that we judge as little as possible and let people express themselves. But we don't allow anything on the platform. If something is hate, terrorism, violence, bullying, you know, hate against protected classes, it comes down, we take it off. Voter suppression. If something is false, misinformation, fake news, we don't take it off. We send it to third-party fact checkers. If they mark it as false, we mark it as false. If you go to share it and it's marked as false, we warn you with a pop-up and we say, do you want to share this? It's been marked as false. We dramatically decrease distribution, so we decrease it to about 20% and we show related articles. How can you possibly do that with 2.7 billion users? <laughs> How can you possibly keep up with all the content that's being produced on Facebook and distributed and shared, et cetera? We can't fact check everything. We're not trying to fact check everything or send everything to third party fact checkers at all. We prioritize in terms of what's going most quickly. So when something's growing really quickly, it gets referred, it goes to the top of the heap, sending it to fact checkers. and. These are really news links. You know, if you're a bad example because you're a media journalist, but you know, if my sister writes a post about her kids and her dogs, which she does all the time, that's not getting fact checked. That said, the challenges of scale here are really important. And in a lot of the areas where we are reluctant to wade in, it's because we know we can't do this well at scale. So we have to rely on other sources. I think one of the most important things we're rolling out in the next year is our content advisory board. We understand that there are real concerns with the amount of power and control we have. That right now, we are the ultimate arbiters of what stays on our service. And so we're setting up a content review board. The final charter has just been released. We've consulted with over 1,000 experts around the world, and there are going to be 40 people appointed. And by next year, they're going to start hearing cases. They don't report to me. They don't report to Mark. It means that if you disagree and something was pulled down and you think it should be up, or if you disagree and we are letting something run from someone else that you don't think you have a place to go, and we're going to abide by their decisions. Since two-thirds of people get their news and information now from social media, do you have any responsibility in your view to at least attempt to make sure that the news on your platform is factual? Because oftentimes I've heard 
well, we're a platform. We're not a publisher, right? And so we're basically the pipes. So where do you see your responsibility in terms of that? So we do think we have a responsibility for fake news and misinformation. But would you say you're not a publisher still? Well, what would you call it? it? So that is a complicated thing, and it means different things to different people. Here's what we are. We are a technology company. A lot of things are published on us. But what I think when people ask that question, they're wondering if we take responsibility for what's on our service. And my answer to you is is yes. We're not a publisher in the traditional sense because we don't have editors who are fact-checking, but we take responsibility. And what we've done on misinformation has decreased people's interactions. Stanford just published a study. They're down by more than half since 2016. It's not perfect. We're not able to fact-check everything, but we had no policies against this in the last election. And you fast forward to today, I think we are in an imperfect, but a much stronger position. Let's talk about the free speech rationale at Georgetown. Mark used Martin Luther King Jr.'s name in his defense of free speech on Facebook, but King's daughter, Bernice, tweeted, I'd like to help Facebook better understand the challenges that MLK faced from disinformation campaigns launched by politicians. These campaigns created an atmosphere for his assassination. And then Sherilyn Eiffel, as you know, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, called his speech, quote, a profound misreading of the civil rights movement in America and a dangerous misunderstanding of the political and digital landscape we now inhabit. It was a controversial speech. And I think the civil rights concerns are very real. in terms of Bernice King, you know, her, her father's legacy, I know her. I actually spoke to her after that tweet. Totally scheduled separately. She's coming to Facebook tomorrow, and I'm going to be in your chair interviewing, and then I'm hosting her for dinner tomorrow night. And what I told her is what I'll say to you, which is that I was grateful she published. We would have liked her to post on Facebook, not just tweet. But we were grateful she spoke out because this is the dialogue we want to have. And she actually tweeted again this morning that she heard from Mark and is looking forward to sitting down and talking with him. Civil rights. She's smooth, isn't she? (laughs) I mean, these are just facts. She tweeted, you can check again to my friend Bernice. We'd like you to post on our platform too. But this is the dialogue, right? There's a lot of disagreement. Civil rights and protecting civil rights are hugely important to Mark, hugely important to me. I'm personally leading the civil rights work at Facebook and we'll continue to do that. And while we don't agree with everything, and there was certainly disagreement over some of Mark's speech, there were other things that we've done because we've listened and learned to them over the last year that I think they feel really good about. We've taken much stronger steps on hate, looked at white nationalism and white separatism because they informed us of it. We've really come down on a very strong policy on voter suppression. We are taking down voter suppression as hate. If you publish you know, the polls are open on Wednesday, not Tuesday. We're taking that down because it's as important to us as hate. And that's all based on work. And so why is voter suppression more important than voter misinformation? It's not. It's not more important. It's just a question of how we handle it. When we have misinformation, what we believe is that unless it's hate or going to lead to real world violence, we need to let the debate continue We dial massively down the distribution to 20%. As I said, we don't want things to go viral. We mark them as false, but then we publish related articles. Here's the other side of the story. We think that's how people get informed, that it's the discourse about the discourse. It is Mark giving a speech and Bernice King disagreeing with it publicly and that dialogue that matters. 
Whereas if it's hate or if someone's really going to show up to the polls the wrong day, we just want to take it off our service. And this is really hard because one person will think something is clearly just, they really disagree with it, and we do too, but they think it's someone else's free expression. And so these lines are going to continue to be really hard to draw. Do you really think that people use Facebook as an opportunity to look at both sides and to see something when it's corrected? Or don't you think that people are getting stuff in their feed that is really affirmation, not information? Oh. Right, I'm so glad you asked this because there's actually really strong data here and no one understands this. So when you think about your contacts in the world, psychologists, you have what's called um, your tight circle of contacts and then your broader circle of contacts. So you basically can keep in touch with five to seven people. That's your mom, your daughters, your husband, John, the people who you know where they are. What Facebook enables you to do is keep in touch with many more people. Without Facebook, without social media, without Instagram, Twitter, you wouldn't hear from your college friends or the people you grew up with that often. So if you compare people who do not use social media for people who do, the people who use social media see much more broad points of view. Because if you don't use social media, you go to maybe one or two news outlets, they have one particular point of view, you read one or two newspapers and that's it. On Facebook, you will see on average 26% of the stuff you see in news will be from another point of view, which means it's not half and half, but it is broadening of your views. And that's something that I don't think we've, we've been able to explain well or people really understand. And the reason for that is if you go to your newsfeed, you don't see like half blue and half red. You just see about 26% more from the other side than you otherwise would. So it is unequivocally true that Facebook usage and usage of social media shows you broader points of view, not narrower points of view than you would see otherwise. And that's something no one understands. When we come back, we take a deep dive into the rise of deep fakes. Facebook's role in the increasing polarization of our country and what the consequences should be if the company doesn't put the proper safeguards in place for the 2020 presidential election. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Let's talk about the free speech argument, which came under attack earlier this year when Facebook decided not to take down that doctored video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Her speech was slowed down. It made her appear to be slurring her words. People thought she was drunk. You defended the decision by saying, we think the only way to fight bad information is with good information. And you said it had been marked as false. But at that point, Cheryl, it had been viewed 2.5 million times. So isn't the damage already done at that point? Like when you do a correction in the newspaper two days later in tiny print on page two, and studies have shown if you see the false story enough and the correction fewer times, then the false story actually stays in your head, not to mention another study by MIT that fake news spreads 70 times faster than real news on Twitter. So I guess, isn't the current standard operating procedure on videos like this a case of too little, too late? I think with the Pelosi video, it was, and we have said that publicly. Our fact checkers moved way too, the process, not the fact checkers' fault, the process for getting it to them and getting it back moved way too slowly. And we've made a change in how we do that to prioritize things that are moving quickly and massively cut down the review time. In that case, we should have caught it way earlier. We think you're right. And we want our systems to work more Because quickly. now the technology allows people to appear that they're doing something or saying something other than what they're actually saying. I mean, how do you keep up with yeah. all of those things? Well, deep fakes is what you're talking about. Yeah. It is a new and emerging area. Yeah, that's what I meant, deep fakes. Yeah, and it's a new and emerging area. And it is definitely one that we don't believe we know everything about because we don't even know what they're going to look like. Here's what we know. We know we're going to need to move way, way, way faster. We know we're going to need very sophisticated engineering to detect them in the first place. We also know that the policies themselves are hard to set, right? And so we, this is an area where we know we move too slowly with the Pelosi video. We are trying to move faster, but we're also setting up working groups and AI working groups to try to develop the technology that will help us identify these in the first place. I wanted to ask you about Joe Biden because I know he's cut down substantially on his Facebook ad spending because he wasn't seeing very good returns. Some strategists have speculated that his message is too centrist and lacking in the inflammatory red meat content that does so well on platforms like Facebook. Are you concerned that you are creating an environment where the most aggressive, inflammatory tribal content is what sells. I know you address that briefly in saying that people get different points of view, but certainly these people seem to gravitate towards that kind of content. I mean, I think that's true across political discourse. I think it's a problem we face. I think you see it in rallies. I think you see it in the debates. I think the problem of people making more inflammatory statements and people rallying to those, particularly as things get more polarized, is a real problem. I don't think it's unique to us. But do you think think you've contributed to the polarization in the country? Um, I think 
everything has contributed. But I do you certainly think Facebook think, is, should I think be held for, accountable for that? Well, I think we have a responsibility to help make sure people get real information, to help participate in the debate, and make sure that people can see other, other points of view. So I think... But are they getting real information if they're if they are getting the most aggressive, inflammatory? In other words, sort of more moderate points of view. They're not as provocative. They don't stoke outrage as much as some of this other content. Look, I think that's true. I think you see it in rallies, too. I think you see it on social media. I think you see it in rallies. When does the crowd cheer? You think you see it in the debates. But I think here's what matters. What matters is that we want people to be able to communicate, express themselves we want people to register to vote and stay in the political process. What I will most worry about is if people start opting out. So one of the things I'm proud of that Facebook has done is we registered over 2 million people to vote in 2018 and in 2016. On Facebook, when you turn 18, we basically say happy birthday and you should register to vote. We have a really easy tool that lets you find your local representative. Most people don't know who their local representative is. So yes, I worry about all that, but we also worry about core engagement to making sure that people don't just opt out, but stay engaged, that they vote, that they know who their representatives are, they know who they're voting, and they participate in the debate. Mark said recently in a leaked audio from an internal Facebook meeting that if Elizabeth Warren becomes president and tries to break up the company, it would be an existential threat and Facebook would go to the mat. What does that mean exactly, go to the mat? We'll have to see, but what this is about is whether I mean, what we'll have to see is what this is. This is about whether or not Facebook should be broken up. And that's a really important question. I think we're facing it. I think all the tech companies are facing it. Um, and it's interesting what to think about What is your biggest this. fear about that? Well, I don't know if it's, if it's a biggest fear. I just think it's but interesting. But would you, would you be okay if it was broken up? Well, we don't want Facebook to be broken up because we think we're able to provide great services across the board. We think we're able to invest in security across the board. So you invest enough in security across the board? Uh, we invest a lot. We're investing much, much, much more. We have hired an extra 35,000 people. We've put tremendous engineering resources and we're doing things like red teams, asking what do we think the bad guys would do and how would we do it? So we're never going to fully be ahead of everything. But if you want to understand what companies care about, you look at where they invest their resources. And if you look back three to five years and you look at today, we've totally changed where we invest our resources. And my job has changed too. If I look at, I've been at Facebook 11 and a half years. For the first eight or so, I spent most of my time growing the company and some time protecting the community. We always did some protection, but now that's definitely flipped. My job is majority building the systems that protect and minority grow. And so we're definitely changing as a company. We're in a different place across the board on all of these things. Do you think you're changing enough, fast enough? I hope so, and we're trying. We're definitely trying. I mean, I think it's about not just the current threats, but the next threat. The question we ask ourselves every day is, okay, we know what happened in 2016, and now we're going to work to prevent it. What is the next thing someone is going to do? And that's going to take a lot of thought and a lot of cooperation across the board. Do you see breaking up Facebook as the existential threat Mark Zuckerberg described? And how are you feeling about Elizabeth Warren these days? So I know Elizabeth Warren. and um, Could you support her if she's the Democratic nominee? I mean, I'm a Democrat. I have supported Democrat nominees in the past. I imagine I will support a, a Democrat nominee. A nominee if it's Elizabeth president. Warren? I mean, <laughs> I'm 
not in the primary right now. I think that's a good place <laughs> for us to be. And so I'm not going to let you drag me into the primary, but I am a very well understood Democrat. I was a supporter of Hillary Clinton. I have spoken for many years about my desire for my daughter and yours to see a woman as president. And so I'd like that. That sounds like a yes. I'd like that not just here. <laughs> I'd like that all over the world. I have this really funny story from a friend of mine in Germany whose son, I love this, said to his mother, he was five, I can't be chancellor. And she said, why not? And he said, well, I'm not a girl. <laughs> Because of Angela Merkel. Because the only person he's ever known was Angela Merkel. So that's pretty good. You've said yourself that you have to get 2020 right. What should be the consequences if Facebook doesn't? I mean, I think we have to earn back trust. Trust is very easily broken. It is hard to earn back. I think we have to earn back trust. I think we need deeper cooperation across the board. We are arguing for regulation in some of these areas, including things that would impact foreign interference. And I think the consequences to us will be grave if, if we don't. What, is, we don't what does that right. mean, consequences will be I think, grave? I think it would further erode trust. I think people will have less faith in the platform and our services. People are continuing to use our services. That's trust we need to earn back, not just with what we say, but what we do. And it is about finding those syndicates and taking them down. It is showing that we can cooperate across the board on both sides of the aisle in Congress and around the world to find the things that threaten our democracy. What can other people do to help Facebook solve some of these problems? Well, thank you for the question. I mean, I think there's a lot of things. So one of the th things that makes us very different than where we were years ago is, I think, pretty radical transparency. So for example, our community standards are completely public. We go public every week or so, or I think every two weeks, with Here's some of the decisions we're making and we take feedback. We're publishing a transparency report. By next year, we're going to do it every quarter, just like earnings, because it's just as important to us as earnings, which has, here's all the stuff we took down. So here's how many billions of accounts that where that number comes from. Here's how much terrorism content. Here's how much hate speech. And then how much of it did we find before it was reported to us? So what that report shows is ISIS and Al-Qaeda content of what we take down, we find 99% of it before it's reported. Hate speech, we're in the mid-60 percentages. Now, that's more than double where we were a year and a half ago, but it still means that 35% of the hate speech we take down has to be reported to us, which means someone has seen it. And Isn't so we are- like whack-a-mole in a way though, Cheryl? That everything you take down, something pops up in its place? How yes. can you ever get, really get control over this? Well, it is like whack-a-mole, right? We take something down. I mean, right now, as you and I have spoken on this stage, someone, many people have posted things. Our job is to build technology that takes that down as quickly as possible and have enough human staff that they can take down the rest really quickly. It is whack-a-mole, but it is the price of free speech. We have a service that 2.7 billion people are using, our services. That means that there's going to be, you know, all the beauty and all the ugliness of humanity. And our job, and it is whack-a-mole, is to get as much of the bad off as quickly as possible and let the good continue. And the only way to get rid of all of it is to shut down all of these services. And I don't think anyone's really for that. What about temporarily shutting them down so you can fix the problems? Would you ever do anything like that? I don't think the temporary shutdown would fix the problems because we have to be in the game to see what people are doing to build the systems to shut down. But the point is people have speech now. Like if you think about my childhood, right? I grew up in Miami, I went to public school. If I wanted to say something to the world, I had no, no opportunity to do it. Couldn't get on your show, 
No one was, no, seriously, you weren't going to take me as a guest. No, I, mean, I wasn't young enough for you that, but hypothetically, <laughs> couldn't get on the person before. I could write an op-ed to the local paper. They weren't going to take it. People did not have voice, full stop. Now, that was a world that people felt actually pretty comfortable in. You could fact check everything. You could. Fast forward to today. Whatever services get shut down, you can post somewhere, which means that everyone has voice, which means that things are not fact checked. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have responsibility. We do. But we are in a fundamentally different place where people around the world have voice. And as hard as this is and as challenging as it is, I so deeply believe in that world, so deeply. I, um, I saw a friend of mine behind the stage who went to my high school. Our high school teacher found a kidney donor on Facebook because she could publish and she could reach people in a way she never could. We just announced that $2 billion have been raised by people on Facebook for their, for their, for their birthdays and their personal fundraisers. Does that mean everything on Facebook is good? Of course not. But you can't shut this down without shutting down a lot of good. And I don't think that's an unacceptable answer. And so we're going to fight to get the bad off and let the good keep happening. And I think there is a lot of good out there. When we come back, a look at the alarming psychological effects of social media on our kids, whether it's time to take a second look at Lean In in light of the Me Too movement, and I'll ask Cheryl about her legacy. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
Let's talk about kids and social media. This isn't so good. The addictive nature... <laughs> The, the, the addictive nature of social media is just one concern. But as you know, I know you have two kids, 12 and 14 now. Depression is up dramatically among young people, and the suicide rate of adolescent girls is up 170% after two decades of decline. And as you know, the leading explanation is the arrival of smartphones and social media. So as a parent and someone who has been a powerful voice for women... How do you respond to that terrifying statistic? And the bigger question, what can be done about it? We take this really seriously. I take it seriously as a Facebook exec. I take it seriously as a mom. So it turns out that all uses of phones, all uses of social media are not equal. There are some that are actually quite good for well-being, and there are some that are not as good. So when you are actively consuming, when you are sharing, when you are messaging, when you are posting, liking, you're interacting with people, that's fairly positive. When you are more passively consuming, that is more negative. And so we made a very big change to the Facebook algorithms in January 2018. And which, what about Instagram as well? Yeah, and Instagram we're working on as well, but we dramatically dialed up the friends and family sharing and dramatically dialed down. On self-harm, our policies are very strict. We do not allow any glorification of it. We don't allow any, we don't allow any glorification of self-harm. We don't allow any encouragement. We do allow people to post about their experiences, and that has been very important. We've worked really hard to develop automated tools. So if you post something that looks like you might be about to self-harm, we will automatically flag um, phone numbers and helplines. We've had a tremendous response from this. And if we think there's imminent danger, we refer it to local law enforcement, and many people have actually been saved by this. The other thing we're working on. But that's at, sort of not well, addressing let, let the, just, the, the, the problem yeah. of addiction, of you know, comparison being the thief of joy. Yeah, let me finish some of the other things we're doing, because these are all really important. And I'm conscious that this clock is beeping at us. Um, so They're going to uh, give me a little extra. Oh, time. they are? Okay, good. Then I can slow down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of the other things that happens is you know, social media can be considered by some to be a place where you know, you're supposed to have the perfect, the perfect life, the perfect body, a real issue for teenage girls, you and I have talked about. We're really trying to go against that. We ran a campaign that's very popular um, on Instagram with real men and women with real body types talking about that. We've worked with the National Suicide Awareness Lines on this. We're working with the WHO on mental health. We're also, I think the answer is almost always technology. So one of the things I think is great, we have a comment warning now that we've been rolling out where our automatic filters detect that you might be posting something that's not nice, we will do a pop-up and say, do you really want to post that? And again, we're seeing a tremendous response. We also have abilities to restrict people to prevent bullying so that you know, if someone were bullying you, you can restrict them. They won't know you're restricting them. And if they comment on your post, no one can see them. And so these issues are real. And we have to work hard on building the technology and the technology and the answers. There are so many huge challenges. And how difficult is it, Cheryl, truly, to address any of these when solving them in some ways works against your business model? You know, one critic said Facebook has priced itself out of morality. And I'm just curious if implementing some of these changes is bad for business. So on this, I'm really pretty proud of our track record. If you look um, a number of years ago, 
and you listen to our earnings calls. So earnings calls are exactly what people are worried about. They're directed at investors. It's our quarterly report. If you actually watch us in earnings calls, we are spending as much time talking about the measures we take on safety and security as we are about our business growth easily. We actually said many quarters ago, this is so important to us that we are going to make massive investments and change the profitability of our company by making real resource investments. And we have to the tune of billions and billions of dollars, and we will keep doing it. We've taken action after action after action that is better for protecting the community than it is for our growth, and we're going to continue to do that. Mark has said it over and over again. I have said it over and over again. Let me ask you about Mark testifying before the House Financial Services Committee in a hearing focused on Facebook's plans to launch a new digital currency called Libra. Given the massive breach and trust the public has experienced with Facebook selling personal information through third parties, is it realistic to expect the world to embrace cryptocurrency an initiative like Libra, given that protecting personal financial data really is next level in terms of the need for security. And I understand you were supposed to testify, but you had kind of a testy exchange with Maxine Waters when you were up on Capitol Hill or somewhere. Can you tell us what happened? We have a lot of respect for Maxine Waters for the work we've done, and we work really closely with her committee. It was her choice to have Mark testify, and that's obviously something we respect But what happened? What happened between you guys? Uh, Let me just answer the question, if you don't mind. On Libra, um, what we have said is that we are working on a digital currency. I think it's really important to think about how many people in the world are not financially included in the banking system. By the way, not a shock, most of those are women. Women pay huge remittance fees. If you go to work as a domestic worker in another home in another country, you're sending back money and you're paying larger fees if you're a woman. And there are people who are unbanked. They work in the fields and their money can be stolen by anyone and women are the most vulnerable. So I think there are really good reasons for a digital currency to exist. And I think they will be good for a lot of people. That said, we've been very clear that we're not launching this until we have regulatory approval. It's not a Facebook project. The currency itself is an international nonprofit set up that we are part of. I know that uh, we wanted to have a moment to talk about Lean In and some of the research that you have found about the discomfort men feel mentoring and spending time alone with women. This is something that greatly concerns you. And what can we do about the increasing unwillingness of men to mentor their female colleagues? And tell us a little more about that research. Well, it's really important because Look, the Me Too movement, you and I have had a chance to talk about it, is so important because women have faced too much harassment for too long. And I think we're in a better place, but we're certainly not protecting everyone we should. That said, we have to worry about the unintended consequences. So what our research shows, this is Lean In and SurveyMonkey, is that 60% of male managers in the United States, 60% are not willing right now, are nervous about having a one-on-one interaction with a woman, including a meeting. Let me do a show of hands in the audience. Who's promoted someone you've never met with? Just in case you can't see, there are no hands. If you cannot get a meeting, you cannot get a promotion. A senior man in the world today is nine times more likely to hesitate to travel with a junior woman and six times more likely to hesitate to travel, to have dinner with a junior woman than a man. So who's getting the travel? The men. Who's getting the dinners? The men. And who's going to get promoted? The men which is what was happening before. Ellen Powell talks a lot about that. It's absolutely the case. You promote the people you know better. Now, I think everyone should be able to do all of these things with everyone. 
You should be able to have a meeting, keep the door open if you want to. Travel does not mean a hotel room. Travel means a public airport. Dinner does not mean you're flat. Dinner means a restaurant. We have to be able to do all of this. But what we really want men to understand is that if you're not going to have dinner with women, don't have dinner with men. Group lunches for everyone. Make access equal. Because if we don't make access equal, we're never going to move these numbers at the top. And women today have 7%, 7% of the CEO jobs. Before we, go, before we go, I want to talk to you, because we talked about Lean In prior to Me Too. And given the systemic failures of so many organizations that we've seen that have tolerated sexual misconduct and harassment, silenced women through NDAs, do you think, in retrospect, given the very real revelations that have surfaced as a result of the Me Too movement, Lean In might have put too much of the onus on women to change instead of getting a lot of these screwed up companies to change? Well, we've always done both. (laughs) One of the problems with the word lean in is you can really oversimplify without actually reading the book and our stuff. But if you read actually what we've written and the work my foundation has done, what we've always said is that we want it to be okay for women to be ambitious and we want companies to change and fix and it has to be both. It's actually pretty interesting. If you say the sentence, he's ambitious, that's pretty neutral or positive. He's gonna get the job done. She's ambitious. That's a negative, and that is still true today. If you look at the use of the word bossy, you know, go to the playground anywhere, I promise, LA or anywhere this weekend, and you see a little girl, you won't see a little girl get called bossy, and you walk up to her parents and you say, that little girl's not bossy, her parents probably did it, big smile on your face, that little girl has executive leadership skills. No one says that. No one says that because we don't expect leadership from girls. And so we have to fix that problem. And that means companies have to change, culture has to change, and women have to feel free. Now they're really... Well, I have one question. They actually wrote a thing that said dynamite dynamite discussion, discussion, but time to wrap. Thank you, Graham. (laughs) Was that like a threat uh, My final question, getting getting back to... All the controversies. I mean, Facebook they has just been. Threatened I know. Life. It's my last question. Is <laughs> wow. they're going to gong us? But no, I'm curious because I just wanted to end this conversation, Cheryl. Given all the controversy Facebook is facing, clearly in the crosshairs. I mean, the company people love to hate. Since you are so associated with Facebook, how worried are you about your personal legacy as a result of your association with this company? I think I have a really big responsibility here for a company I love and believe in, that I really believe in what I said about people having voice. I really know that when I was growing up, I had no ability to reach anyone, and most people in the world didn't, and social media has changed that. There are a lot of problems to fix, and we did a great job in this audience talking about a lot of them in this interview. They're real, and I have a real responsibility to do it. But I feel more committed and energized than ever because I want to fight to preserve the good. Because I met a woman not so long ago who, for her birthday, raised $4,000 for a domestic violence shelter that she volunteers at. And crying, she told me, I saved two women from domestic abuse. I never could have done that before Facebook. And so there are really big issues to fix, but I am so committed to giving people voice and giving people a way to react that I just want to keep doing the work. And committed to I feel fixing, honored to do it. And, and committed, committed to, to fixing, fixing the, problems. the problems. I want to fix them. All right. Well, they're definitely going to kill me if I don't stop now. Cheryl Sandberg, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. 
After we were done, Cheryl and I later exchanged emails. She told me this was the toughest interview she had ever done, but complimented me on being so well prepared. She was incredibly gracious about the whole thing. Meanwhile, about a week after our conversation, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey announced it was banning all paid political ads globally. Facebook, though, is still sticking with its policy, at least for now. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If a weekly podcast isn't enough of me, you can follow me, yep, on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you feel like you're drowning in a 24-7 sea of news and information, sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, at katiecurric.com. Because, as they say, the best part of waking up is Katie in your inbox. Sorry, Folgers. That was pretty bad, wasn't it, everyone? Thanks again for listening, everyone. And I can't wait to be in your ear again next week. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Lauren Bright Pacheco, Julie Douglas, and Tyler Klang. Our show producers are Beth Ann Macaluso and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. Associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing is by Dylan Fagan, Derek Clements, and Lowell Berlanti. Our researcher is Barbara Keene. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecurric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecurric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.